0: This much we know is a podcast offering an honest and informative perspective of the realities and motivations of setting up a social enterprise. We'll be joined by a number of charity leaders and social entrepreneurs whose trading models work to end homelessness. We'll be sharing their stories, tips, and of course their facepalm moments.
1: Morning Murphy.
0: Good morning, Simon. Another day, another podcast.
1: Yes, it's great, isn't it? We've got our guest here already.
0: We have. I'll introduce you, Neil, and if you want to share a bit about you and your role and, and your sort of, I guess, experience of social enterprise, that would be great. So we've got Neil Berry here from Access, the Foundation of Social Investment.
2: Hi there, guys. Yeah, great, great to be with you today. So yeah, my background. So I've been working in the field of social enterprise for not far off 30 years now. I started, I still live in Sheffield, and I started working for a frontline and kind of medium-sized social enterprise in Sheffield. I, I kind of stumbled into it initially, as I think a lot of people do in the, in the sector, you uh, know, alighting into it a bit by random and by accident. But but yeah, and then, then been, been involved ever since. So eight years working uh, for that frontline organisation in social enterprise, and then for the the next almost 20 years i've been in various advisory network development roles and now more latterly with access in in funding and investment roles into the sector so uh, at access i'm director of programs uh, so overseeing all the uh, enterprise grant and social investment programs that access is involved in so i suppose my my journey in social investment has been to to get further and further away from the coalface Uh, as well as further and further sucked down to London from Sheffield as well so probably something I need to do something about that really don't I. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent
1: Um, well Neil really good to have you with us and um, I guess we've got a few sort of questions but as you know we sort of keep this conversational if we can so you mentioned your sort of eight years in sort of frontline social enterprise and then more latterly the 22 years on the other side of the fence effectively in the funding space although I don't think it is the other side of the fence I might have to take that back what have been the highlights for you what what are the bits because it's quite a lengthy career sort of working in this space so what what have been the highlights for you? Well I
2: think I've been really lucky actually to to work at lots of different levels I, I suppose the where I've probably been happiest overall actually was when I when I was working directly with Other social enterprises, in a range of social enterprises, you know, I loved loved working at at the coalface, delivering the impact, seeing the impact directly, but then working with a range of social enterprises so you can add value and support organizations, but you see the range different organizations of all types. And I've worked with, you know, all sorts of rural, urban, different types of enterprises. I mean, my background is very much community enterprises or neighborhood-based enterprises, which I'm really passionate about. It's about people getting involved in their local area, taking ownership of local local enterprise. But that that means that you see all the different uh, neighborhoods. I think an overall, overall highlight for me would be there was a period where, I was doing a lot of work supporting organizations that were taking on buildings, mostly formerly public buildings, quite big buildings, the kind of asset transfers that. Um, that are still uh popular now but uh, a few years ago with, uh, there was a real a real push uh, on on assets being transferred from from public sector to to communities and i i got involved in schools and swimming pools and libraries and other buildings like like town halls and you know, which are probably the biggest been involved in, and actually this kind of comes to mind because uh, last weekend, just last weekend, I was randomly up in uh, Hebden Bridge, a town in in Yorkshire that I've not been to for a while, just up there because a, a friend had an event up there, um, and I was involved in the early stages of when when the the group in the local group in Hebsenbridge were looking to take the town hall into community ownership because it was was really kind of underused and just being up there on a lovely early spring day actually the town as a whole was buzzing but the town hall was right at the heart of this and it was on a Sunday but it was open cafe was open there was an ice rink pretend ice rink in the in the outside courtyard uh still walkers you know going around and and lots of lots of kids and families around and it was just absolutely humming and just to see that which was a long difficult project to actually get that asset transferred and refurbished because it was a tired old building and to see it you know absolutely at the heart of of the town on a spring day like that was fantastic so that that's probably you know supporting those kind of projects would be one of the overall highlights
0: Mm, it's Firstly, that, that sort of picture that you just described there sounds idyllic, bar the stilts, which absolutely terrify me. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, what I'm picking up there is that the frontline experience, you know, when you're working more closely, the community-led organisations, when you are working with organisations like that, you get much more of a full cycle, don't you? You know, you're sort of involved in the different aspects, whereas with sort of you know, like the work that Access does, you know, so much of it is bringing together different experts to kind of have these segmented roles within the support?
2: I think that's very fair, yeah. Yeah, I see that.
0: Do you think that you, the way that we've evolved in the, in the sort of funding support programme space to be more uh, expertise led as opposed to full cycle is something that it is exciting? Or do you think people miss out on that kind of relationship with organisations?
2: So i think that's a really good question i think if if i reflect on the kind of structures we've tried to put in place in the enterprise development program for example where we where we work together murphy um in in the early days of the enterprise development program it was much more uh, conceived of as a grant program it was apply for a grant and help with your, your your enterprise development and i think we we re-engineered it after the first year of the pilot year precisely for what you were saying i think we you 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 can only really support organisations on a journey if you're there on a journey and you realise that there's different there's different stages to that journey and there's different cycles through the year that organizations go through and I don't think you can compartmentalize enterprise support is not just about supporting with one aspect you know dipping in and and dipping it out it is you know it covers everything it covers governance it covers financial literacy it covers marketing it covers HR you know all of these elements are are crucial to uh, successful development of enterprise income so I, I, I think yeah the support is best provided when you can immerse yourself more in an organization and understand all facets and how they develop together so hopefully that's that's some of what we've tried to put together on the on on the program and the roles that we've we've tried to carve out for the enterprise development managers like yourselves
0: as well. yeah no, it's an interesting one I'm just thinking about the comparison um, I'm aware that was question one and I've already gone off script so we can tell how this is going to go <laughs> the rest of the conversation oh good <laughs> No, that was really interesting, yeah, thinking about sort of how to do it. Because it's, it is true that, you know, in an in a organisation, if one person does everything, you know, although they might have a much better understanding of it, it's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, but the charity sector is quite like that, isn't it? You know, you've often got sort of CEOs who have five hats.
1: If they're lucky to have so few. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Neil, you sort of touched upon how you ran the first enterprise development and then reshaped it looked at what we learned and then and then ran it again and, and and differently sort of looking across all of your experiences and everything you've been involved with is there is there has been a sort of face palm moment for you so a moment where you know like a project or a program or an organization you were supporting just completely yeah complete complete failure complete write-off or one of those examples where you think if i did that again we wouldn't do the
2: following things um
0: yeah i wish i knew that
2: (laughs) yeah i mean so so many examples i you know i think rarely is it you know kind of total write-off and failure and i think that's one of the things about you know people need to get with with enterprises that it's hard and things don't go to plan and that and that failure is just it's kind of springboard to Try again and do something differently and do it better. You rarely get it right the first time, so I think face palm moments are important. I, I, a couple spring to mind actually. One one is like from my own practice when I was running the the the, the organisation, the the enterprise I I was running back in in Sheffield all those years ago, um, uh, and I, I can think of another particularly <laughs> tricky example with an organisation I support, but maybe maybe I'll I'll talk about. I'll talk about my own experience, my own facepalm moment. And this was, we were, we were running uh, an employability program effectively. And, you know, these, these are t- a fairly commonplace now, but back in those days, it was in the early noughties, uh, it was quite unusual actually. So it was, it was a program that supported in, in a deprived local community, people that had been out of work for some time and supported them with CV development, employability training. Some basic skills, and really, you're just trying to get people uh, back into the labour market in a position they could compete in the labour market. And we we had a model that other people were interested in because we were just doing it in our local community. It's quite geographically limited, and a local public sector organisation wanted to wanted us basically to take that model and, and put it out into into other communities. And so they asked us effectively for a unit cost of what it would what it would take. To develop another small satellite service to what we were doing, and they indicated, you know, they'd, they'd got a, an idea of budget, but they just wanted to know what the unit cost was to, to work out whether they might be able to buy one or even two of these satellite services in other communities. And we went away and costed it and and looked. at We wanted to offer good value for money. We didn't want to overprice ourselves. Uh, and so we we kind of squeezed ourselves a little bit, and said well we could we could just about do it for this, and so we came up with the unit price, you know, wondering whether they'd end up buying one or two from us. And the and the reaction was, oh is that all? We'll have four then. Um, <laughs> and we end so we did end up running four of these satellite centers, which is great that you know we we developed in all these places. But you know we had squeezed ourselves, we'd underpriced ourselves, we'd undervalued what the service would work, we'd not understood what our customer was thinking in terms of, you know, available budget and what they, what they would value it as. And, you know, in reality, you know, ha- having time again, we would have priced it differently. Even if it meant we wouldn't have been able to do four, we, you know, might just have done two or three, but we'd have been paid properly for it. We wouldn't have squeezed ourselves. It did cause ourselves some problems that, you know, would we'd lay a bit too thinly. So that taught me a lot about. About pricing, costing, valuing what it is you're doing, and understanding your customer. So that was a de- that moment that they said, "Oh, we'll have four Then that was a definite.
1: It's.
0: Part. I think it's so common for the trade sector, particularly organisations who are sort of starting to trade as well, and that that sort of pricing piece and and the wish to have the work delivered regardless of you know if you're working in this space, what you want is the outcomes, isn't it? So you you tend to kind of yeah suffer yourself in order to make that happen
2: yeah exactly so but then you suffer yourself in the long term you've got to get you've got to get pricing right because you you know if if you've got an aspiration to grow which we didn't necessarily have but if you have got an aspiration to, to kind of grow and do more or even if you want to see other people replicate you've you've got to not just think about what it's going to cost for you to limp along and just manage to do things you've got to think about Profitability—you've got to think about the ability to to scale something up in a sustainable way that can attract investment potentially because it's because it's priced properly and is is profitable. And yeah, doing things that you know just so they break even, just so you can just about achieve it, actually, it it hampers you, it stunts you, it stunts mm. your growth.
0: From a from a funder's perspective, because I think if you're a a charity, social enterprise, you know, applying for a grant to develop something, there. You know, often are trying to make the cost as low as possible to access funding to do so. From a funding position, do you think that if someone was to put forward an application or something, that actually having a aspirational pricing structure would be something that you would look to more positively because of that sort of thing?
2: Uh, undoubtedly. I mean, we're I suppose we're an un, a slightly unusual funder in that we, what we want to invest in is is the strength of organizational development of course we're interested in impact we're interested in what's achieved but our mission is to support organizations to be more financially resilient to grow their enterprise income to think about the future think about how they can invest and attract investment to to grow further so our metric is is about organizational resilience and, and Profitability, really. So, so it might not be that all funders will necessarily look at it on this way, but you know, certainly, I, you know, I, I always look out for organisations that haven't thought properly about. Or I haven't got a sustainable business model, I suppose, and a, and are not pricing things correctly, partly because of my experience. So something that is priced more more aspirationally and and potentially more profitably, so long as it's not entirely unrealistic. You know, I think that's got to be the way to go, and I I certainly. Would it more favorably yeah
1: it's such an important thing isn't it pricing and getting that right it's so often that we find yeah I work with a lot of organizations and they show me their sort of management accounts you're like how can you be this busy and and working so hard (laughs) and yet be making just have so little in in the bank at the end of each month consistently as well not even you know we all have bad quarters and we have bad months but just consistently struggling along you know and it's it is very difficult to watch from the sort of from our perspective or my perspective i find that really difficult because i'm like if only you knew how valuable what you were doing is and you could think about the value that it adds to the you know society or wh- whoever it is you know if it's saving the prison system or whatever loads of money it's just that isn't it it's that working out yeah how on earth do we value what we've got here and what we do It's it is really difficult but so
2: important it, it is. It, it, Definitely so, and I, you know, I wouldn't suggest at all that the the problems in this regard lie on the side of the social enterprise sector. You know, it's it's driven by um, a, a market, particularly the public sector market, that has underval- itself undervalued, underpriced, uh, undersupported uh, organisations for for years, and even even grant funders. You know, traditionally, grant funders will say, you know, we want we we want to pay for the costs of delivering. A service we don't want to pay overheads. We don't want to pay full cost. Everything's going to be costed. We don't want to. We don't want to be paying you more than it's it's costing you to deliver. So the whole market has been geared up to encourage organisations not to think in terms of generating reasonable, healthy surpluses on on what they're doing. You know, and the, and the public, the more the public service, public sector income. Has been uh, squeezed. The more organisations have found they've simply had no choice, particularly in competitive tender situations. That often public sector bodies are not prepared to pay the full cost of of what's involved in delivering the service. So some of that undervaluing is is driven by external forces. We have to acknowledge that it's not just all on people not knowing how to price price things themselves. But some, you know, as with my my example you know from from my own experience sometimes your own you are your own worst enemy on this and you can get sucked into thinking that you've got to undercut yourself at all points
1: yeah and you land and you can easily land in a in a space you never wanted to be in sort of yeah why is it we're here five years down the line how do we end up even with this with this piece of work or with this project and it always it yeah and you can always track it back to that that point where somebody said would you consider doing this an organization is just going yeah okay brilliant but not actually thinking about, yeah, whether that puts them in a, yeah, whether that positions them to be more missionally focused and achieve more, um, or whether it just makes other people happy. And it's that that sort of balance, isn't it? It's really difficult, difficult process, I think organisations have to go through.
0: To sort of segue on from, I guess, um, challenges in in funding, pricing, all those sort of things. Is there any particular challenges that you think, if you can choose one <laughs> over the last decade that um, charities social enterprises have had in terms of accessing funding
2: yeah I, I i do i think there's a general a general sense in which that the funding environment doesn't support long term patient development of organisations i mean it's easy to say but in my mind funders should be thinking about the organisations they want to back and they should be thinking about getting support and investment into the best organisations and giving them the platform to deliver for the future rather than just thinking about what are we going to what are we going to buy this year from this organisation so many organisations are on a hamster wheel they you know they know where the money's coming from for the next 6 to 12 months but they're they're just getting the short-term project-based type funding, you know, regardless of whether they're, they're attracting funding by, by grant or, or trading income or a mix, it's, it's very short-term. And in terms of what, what most organisations lack is that strength of, of capital, a capital base that means that they can plan much longer term. So they're off piecing together little bits of income. And thinking in terms of this year's budget, maybe next year's budget, if we're lucky, rather than being able to plan uh, longer term. And the money that they're getting in is never quite enough. It's kind of piecing together, and just about getting to a break-even budget, particularly in recent recent years. Um, we we need funding that gets that finds the best organisations and says, like, we're gonna we're gonna back you for five years, ten years. You know, put in some investment up front knowing that in five or ten years time you'll be a great organization and in terms of in terms of social investment you know that and repayable social investment can, can take the same approach we're going to invest in you now and we know it's going to take you a while to get where you want to get to but we're going to be there in five or ten, year, 10 years to reap the rewards ourselves of of your of your growth but it, you know even general investment doesn't doesn't go in in that in that very long-term and patient way. If we can get to that position, it means that the that grant money can go further. If we're combining grant with other repayable investment in order to get longer-term finance in place to give organisations a foundation, so that they stop scrabbling around on the hamster wheel. It means that the that that kind of short-term revenue grant, which is which is so needed in so many places. Um, uh, can go that, that bit further. At the moment, everyone's everyone's trying to fish in the same small ponds and we need to get people out of that short-term mentality, use that precious money for things that really can only ever be done by, by short-term grant and get those organisations that can get onto a different plane uh, and a longer-term, more diverse income base. We need to get organisations that can onto that and it'll make the whole the whole system of finance a lot easier in the future but we just got to make that that breakthrough to a different way of working I think yeah it's that sort of
1: cultural change across the across the sector that we need doesn't it i think as we sort of come out of covid and what have you i think that is the i think now is sort of that critical point isn't it i, I like to think that where people are going to start making that change if the funding landscape can allow that or enable it from your point of view Neil, where do you what do you foresee as like the challenges over the sort of next five five to ten years in terms of talking about the social sector and funding and income and and that yeah only a small question for you there but so what do you think are the big other other the the pertinent challenges for the next few years i suppose i mean obviously
2: it has to be it has to be related to the sector's response to, to covid coming out the the pandemic the sector's always been very Relying on what the public sector does to 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 support the the growth of the sector, the extent to which it purchases or funds the sector. So, I, I think the challenges will relate to how the sector is is perceived and what happens to public finances uh in in the coming years you know we might expect that there's going to be another significant squeeze and it's always in these situations there's the opportunity for it to be a great opportunity to do things differently to offer value in a different way to show how this the sector can deliver uh two types of value for the public sector for one for one price effectively and the extent to which the the case for that can be made and and I think organizations that that can be flexible and fleet of foot and make a transition to a slightly different way of operating may continue to do well. But I think we're we're going to see a squeeze in grant income, we're going to see a squeeze in public sector finances probably, and organisations are going to need to adapt to that if they're going to do well. We've already seen in the pandemic different types of responses from the social social economy organisations. And some have been remarkably adaptable, actually, it seems, in terms of changing what they do, changing how they work, changing how they engage with their communities to keep lights on. You know, while lots of organizations are taking the opportunities of furlough and just saying, we're going to mothball our operations, you know, we'll sit tight until things improve and things open up and we can go back to doing what what we were doing before plenty of other organisations have have said no you know our service is more important than ever we we can't just mothball things we've got to find a way to keep lights on do things differently not put stuff on furlough and and i think we've we've seen some real um real energy actually in the sector and increased collaboration as well It's one of the things i've i've found really positive
0: yeah i think people are much more aware of what's what's on offer around them as well you know understanding you know their kind of regional position if you like i think something you mentioned earlier i thought was really interesting around the having sort of longer term funding but also connecting that to how we're going to respond since the covid crisis and i think a lot of that is that one of the issues at the moment in the charge sector is around recruitment and retention you know the charge sector is famous for contract roles which is you know following on from you know single year finance and actually people are, are nervous to take contracted positions now, not having a sort of thing. So is is the sector going to respond to that? A funder's going to do sort of, you know, three, four, five-year contracts as a response? I'm, that's something I'm interested to know more about.
2: Yeah, I, I guess time will tell. I mean, the, the difficulty with, with squeezed public finance is one of the, one of the real pernicious effects I think of, of squeezed public finances is is not it's not just in the volume of activity that the the public sector will commission but it's it encourages much shorter term horizons on their on their part where public sec- where the public sector can't play itself plan three or four years ahead and its own approach to its own budgeting is you know how do we get through the next year? What's our going to? What's our settlement going to be next year? We have no idea. What? Uh, but let's get through to the next year with you know ourselves with the break-even budget. So it, it's going to take a collective, a, a real collective creativity to enable the whole country to think long term. Actually, short short-term thinking is short-term funding cycles is is is, is makes the work of social economy hard so uh organization's so much harder i think the inability to plan long term because we are talking about long-term generational change and impact and and living hand-to-mouth is is really hard so i think it's the right it's the right aspiration the right question Matthew, I hope we can what's get
1: the what do you feel is the most useful support we can offer as sort of people working not in not so much in organizations but with organizations what do you think is the most important support we can offer to help organisations transition off that hamster wheel into some sort of more long term footing? What, what's the best thing we could be doing as a sector? Do you think as a as a group of people that work with organisations? May I add
2: two things? You can have you can have three if you wish. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, thank you. It's very generous. I'll 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 start with two. Um, I think that the most the most important source of support. Always, for social economy organisations, is is peer support uh, yeah. and inspiration in being able to imagine a different future and, and think yeah we we they're doing that we can do that when you're trying to imagine a different a different future for yourself and getting off the hamster hamster wheel as we say uh, in, into a different uh, different mode of operation um, that inspiration from seeing what other people have done and learning from their mistakes there's there's never any substitute for that so I think any any support organization needs to be thinking about how they harness the power of other other organizations and not just thinking that it's a it's a technical answer to to the problem about what what advice and support they need having said that on the other side in in terms of in terms of technical support I've long felt that the um of, of all the different elements of organisational development that social enterprises struggle with, um, financial literacy and planning, for me, has always been the, the, the biggest barrier. You can get everything else right, but if you're not working out what your cost base is, keeping a handle on your, keeping a lid on the cost, working out what your break-even point is, working out, what your market can bear in terms of pricing, as we were saying before, you're gonna be on hiding to nothing. So much of it comes down to that ability to plan financially. You get that wrong and and it doesn't matter what else you get right in terms of your your marketing and your product, it can be the best in the world, but if you can't get your finances right, you're not gonna last very long. And fundamentally what I've seen time and time again is that organizations don't even know often actually what their financial position is and holding up a mirror to organizations and saying actually this is what's going on with your finances this is why in that example you had before simon of organizations being working so hard and at the end of the month finding that there's still nothing left in the in the bank account people often don't understand why that's happening to them because they can't they haven't got necessarily the financial skills within the organization um to to work out what what the story is and what the business model that they're operating actually is so i think that's that's the most important technical area of support i think that organizations Something we,
0: we, i see a lot in my role in speaking to people and, and simon i'm sure sure you have as well i think there's there's a few sort of comments or thoughts i have i guess from that there's the financial literacy you meant the financial the language around it you know often either finances sit with a senior director a treasurer or or a single person so although there might be skills in that area in an organization it's not necessarily with the people who might be making decisions or or understood across the board do you think that the the way to bring in good financial literacy into an organization is is best through a i don't know external financial auditor with recommendations with good governance with further sort of cash for staff resources in that or around sort of general staff training
2: yes all this is my third all of the above no 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 (laughs) No, (laughs) i mean to, to achieve it in a sustainable way you've got to embed that learning in the organization it can't just be external you can't just rely on an auditor each year coming in you know uh, and, and telling you what's happening with your business model. And not all auditors can do that role anyway. Um, and accountants can uh, you know sometimes uh, you know they they can be good at presenting financial information in in a certain way, but uh, aren't necessarily good at analysing business models. So there's a real skill actually. It's a subset of financially savvy advisors, often accountants, that actually are able to both present financial information really, really clearly, but actually understand the business model, be able to to, to consider actually what lies behind the profit and loss, what's driving profit and loss performance, rather than just being able to report on it. And it's another skill entirely for those people to be able to coach and support organizations to, to make a change. Not all uh, accountants and financial advisors are really good at coaching organisations to develop those skills. So I think it's got to start often with external input, but somehow you've got to find a way to embed that that learning. It can be difficult for organisations that are growing, because the needs the the needs for financial sophistication change over time, and often. You have organisations that start off with maybe no financial support in-house, financial staffing in-house, and then you know, say, so bought externally, and then they maybe get a kind of part-time bookkeeper in, a kind of financial administrator. By the time they've they've grown to a certain size, they they need somebody on the books that that can really help to analyse financial performance. So it's quite difficult unless you, you've got someone that can can. Grow into that role. Sometimes you you actually need a different role over time. Um, and then finally, in terms of in terms of governance, I think I think that's absolutely key. Obviously, uh, governance and board have got a, a a fundamental role in being able to scrutinise uh, and hold financial performance to account. And I think there's weaknesses generally there in in organize in social enterprise organisations. I think the the approach is often to make sure that the finances are being managed properly in inverted commas. it's almost like a it's an accountability thing it's just just check that the 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 books are right but the what what boards need to do what governance needs to do is scrutinize the the business model and the business performance of the organization and there's often a skills deficit there so i think it needs to be addressed at all at all points and it's mm. got to be external and internal
0: with the, with the governance, I'm really interested in, in sort of governance and, and how that supports particularly transitioning charities to social enterprise. Do you think from a typically sort of finances in, in charities, to my understanding, is it's kind of fed up to the board for them to sign off and, and sort of that's, that's where it stops. But there's this sort of other side where, where boards ha, are responsible and accountable for ensuring that the staff understand the finances. Do you, have you seen any sort of examples of that that's gone right? Do you think that's a a direction?
2: Yeah, I, I've certainly seen seen examples, you know, where organisations are lucky enough to have the people on the board that have got both the skills and the time to to perform that role. You know, I've I've seen organisations, you know, treasurers, for example, that have been absolutely fantastic about performing that that kind of coaching and training role effectively. Um, and, you know, somebody that can ha- come into that role and say, look, th- this is what's going on with the organisation. This is how you need to present information back to us and my, and my fellow trustees. Um, but, you know, I'm going to sit down and take the time with you so that we can work out, to, you know, together a way in which you as, as staff members can-, can run the finances and feed information back to us. Um, you- yeah i've seen great examples of that happen but i th- it's probably a rarity because you e- you either end up with people with the the skills or the time to do that but not necessarily both uh both together so i don't think it it necessarily can be relied on as a source i think it's it's is something where you probably in most cases most organizations probably going to need some external support to enable that to happen and often, you know, often the, the the imbalance is is in the is in the other direction. Is actually that there's more financial literacy within the staff team than there might be on the board, which is you know, it's quite a difficult position to be in. And it's almost this, the staff team end up coaching the directors through understanding what what's actually happening in
1: the organisation. It's so interesting, isn't it? The governance and finance bit. It's just yeah, it just it it's so crucial, isn't it? To actually achieving the impact and the mission of your organisation, and yet it's the one area that commonly gets left behind, isn't it? We're very good at the the mission and the and the doing, but we we leave behind some of the the basics around finance and governance. But that's always the thing that (laughs) causes the issue at some point. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really challenging. um Neil, who are you watching at the moment? Uh, Is there a have you got have you got your eye on a couple of social enterprises? Is it you're like. Now that, my friends, is a brilliant idea. I can't wait to see where that one goes. Have you got an organisation or two like that that you're sort of keeping an
2: eye on? You you know that's the kiss of death question, don't you? Uh,
1: yes, this uh, is the bit fine. that yeah, we'll definitely uh, come back to you in two years' time. They'll say, so, but you said in that podcast you liked yeah. us. Now we want the <laughs> cash. Come on.
2: Oh, I'm not. I'm not thinking so much that. I'm just thinking that you know that his, history is littered with with organisations getting praised and winning awards and then going bust a year later. So that's that, that, more that um i don't want to i don't want to put the kiss of death on any organization um uh, I, I i would always answer this question actually to organizations that i that i just i i think are achieving great impact but but doing so really really cleverly and and carefully i'm not a great believer in kind of fantastic unique ideas actually there's very few ideas that are genuinely groundbreaking and unique the vast majority of organizations out there are doing stuff that other people are doing elsewhere which is why that peer support and inspiration is so important because whatever you're doing someone else out there is is doing it or has done it or has thought about doing it um so i i you know there are there's a couple of organizations that do spring to mind um but you know I, i like them because of not so much because of the uh, the innovative nature of what they're doing but the, the thoughtfulness with which they're going about things. And these are both examples for our enterprise development program. Um, one is an organization called ICENA, and uh, it's I, I like this one because it's a, a collaboration between a, a, a number of different organizations that, that kind of sexual violence, Uh, charities that have seen an opportunity for trading uh, income around training and consultancy that they're being it's not their own core business as individual uh, kind of crisis centers but they're often asked asked to support other organizations businesses um, public sector with training and advice and consultancy in relation to the to the issues and and rather than try to do things individually themselves as small organizations and kind of uh, take themselves off their own mission they've they've banded together and created a single uh, and, and kind of larger training consultancy arm that can do the job properly uh, set its stall out well. And, and benefit all the organisations. So, delivers impact in itself, but also uh, should deliver returns back to the individual organisations and underpin the, the most impactful work at the front line. So, I just quite, I quite like that idea uh, because of the collaborative nature, and it seems to be going well. It's a, in its early stages. Uh, another example I've seen recently I really like is actually one within the homelessness uh, cohort of, of the enterprise development program and I've I've been interested to follow the the, the path of the running charity Murphy um, and and seen not only and I think that is an example where they've got a really interesting and a and, and different model actually really impactful in all sorts of different ways uh, but also with a, a a sound potential business model behind it financial model behind it and a lot of kind of financial savvy, that's going into thinking about how, how that can grow and grow sustainably as well. Um, and also it's seen that they've they've engaged really well in in, in the peer support structures that have been put in place uh, as well and been, uh, as I understand it, really kind of quite keen to to give back and participate and support other organisations that are on a similar journey to them. Right. Well. Yeah. Very good. Love it. We had the running charity. We had Alex from the running charity on in the last
1: series, we didn't we? Did. That was brilliant. I do remember, yeah, I got all carried away on that one because he's a they sort of use youth work in their work, which I love being an ex-youth worker, so I was all over it. <laughs> Murphy had to I sort of calm get a me word down. In edgeways.
0: Re- <laughs> yeah, she had to
1: calm me down so I didn't get all carried away. No, brilliant. I love the two examples you just given because they're so different and there's different things going on within both of them that are just yeah. Oh mm. yeah, make them want to watch. Really, they're
0: both quite organically formed as well. I think that that sort of idea of sort of not out the box, but actually, you know, what what kind of happens naturally, and how to sort of develop that into a into um, a product.
1: Neil, it's been really good to have you on. Um, I appreciate you're really busy. And I know before the podcast, you said you'd come from a really complex meeting. So we'll we'll let you off and let you go and have a bit of a breather. Um, but it's been really good to have you with us. Yeah. Just really insightful, really knowledgeable. And yeah, it's been really good to have you on. So um, yeah, perhaps we can have him back. I say this at the end of every podcast. Basically, so we can keep it going forever um but yeah it'd be great to have you back at some yeah, point i'd
2: love to thanks thanks very much for having me on this uh, great series of podcasts i've listened to the others great interest. so yeah yeah honored to be honored to be on it and uh, hope i've said something of of use to someone out there
0: definitely no it's been fab it's it's really interesting sort of having this different side as well you know having the last two series focus on entrepreneurs and, and sort of charity leaders um it's brilliant to get that and also you've got sort of experience from both sides. So yeah. Wealth of knowledge to share, really appreciated. And um, yeah, if people want to have a look, uh, get in touch with, with you or, or find out more about Access, where can we find you?
2: Yeah, so uh, online, on, unsurprisingly, Access, the Foundation for Social Investment is our Sunday name, at Access for short, and uh, Access underscore SI is our Twitter
0: handle. Awesome. We'll Brilliant. share that as well when we release um, this episode so people can have a look, have a nose about and see everything that they've been up to. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on and we look forward to catching up with you soon.
2: Fantastic. Thanks both. Great to start to. You.
1: Thank you, Neil. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes or follow us on Twitter at much underscore we know or email us at thismuchweknow at homelesslink.org.uk.